Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, I have Mike Currier. Mike is a jiu-jitsu black belt under fourth-degree black belt professor Michael Chapman. Mike began training gymnastics at age 10 and was a nationally ranked gymnast until 1999. After retiring from competitive gymnastics, Mike transitioned into coaching. He has coached for multiple gyms, including the world-famous Camp Woodward in Woodward, Pennsylvania. While living in Pennsylvania, Mike also worked as an assistant coach for Penn State University. He began training jiu-jitsu in 2014 and started coaching movement classes shortly after. In December 2015, Mike opened his first jiu-jitsu academy in Sherwood, Oregon. In June 2018, Mike and his wife Samantha, a BJJ brown belt herself, and their son moved to Fountain Hills, Arizona, where they opened Impact Fountain Hills. Impact was the first jiu-jitsu academy in Fountain Hills and remains the only tumbling parkour gym in the area. I really resonate with Mike's story. We share several experiences and philosophies. Mike really opens up and speaks candidly about being a fellow quitter, not being a planner, being a coach, being a competitor, the importance of entertaining jiu-jitsu, being a belt snob, and so much more. It's one of my favorite discussions thus far, and Mike is just a fantastic individual. I look forward to many more discussions with him in the future. Just a reminder to please give us five stars review on iTunes, or just share this podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. And check out Forever White Belt merchandise at teespring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. Also, like our Facebook page to get all the latest, and check us out on all the socials by searching for Forever White Belt. And with that, I give you Mike Courier. Hey, Mike. Great to see you. Thanks for joining me. <laughs> Thank you for having me on. For the people that just don't know you, please let us know who you are. Yeah. So uh, currently, I'm a black belt under Professor Michael Chapman. Uh, he is a Chris Howder black belt. So that's kind of my, my lineage through Howder and Hegan. And so I started training jiu-jitsu in Portland, Oregon, only about seven years ago. And so I was lucky enough to kind of dive in with two feet. And so about maybe eight months into training, I bought my first gym with my coach. We partnered up. And since that early days, this has been my profession. So we kind of knew right away that this was going to be how I was going to make my living. And I started off as a white belt training 40 hours a week and took it like I was, you know, in college. Coincidentally, my wife was getting her doctorate at the same time. And so wow. I knew that I had to be a doctor in jujitsu in the same time that she got her doctorate in medicine. And so I really treated it that way. And so I dove right in and went from there. And now we're on to, this is my second state that I've owned a gym in, my fourth building that we've been in throughout the wow. two different gyms. And uh, I moved to Arizona three years ago to open up the first impact affiliate in Arizona. Been operating that, as I said, for three years, competing still internationally, doing lots of seminars. I travel now with the Globetrotters organization. They send me all over the world. We're getting ready to head to Ireland, Paris, Switzerland, Poland, and then Germany. All that before I head back to the States and then I do it again. And so we're heading off. I'll be teaching here in Tempe for the Arizona camp for Globetrotters. And then I head to St. Bart's and then to Austria in January. So this really is my, my full-time profession. This is all I do for a living is just live, eat, sleep, breathe jujitsu. 
the way I stumbled onto you was, as you know, as of late, for whatever, the YouTube algorithms have fallen in love with you and your K-Guard Globetrotters video. Let's talk about this video in particular with, with K-Guard that you did for Globetrotters in Arizona, correct? Yes, sir. There's several things that I love about the video. Well, let's talk about your teaching style in general. It's fantastic, all right? You have what Thank I call you. the it factor, right? You're entertaining, you're intelligent, you're extremely articulate. I noticed that a lot of the people that come to this seminar were very engaged, and I learned a lot from your video, and I watched it several, several times. What's it like going to that type of situation where there's no context, right? You don't know a lot of these people or whatever. And how do you approach that? You know, it's, I think it lends to my teaching style very well. When I teach in the academy, there's very few step-by-step -step processes, right? So uh, it's very conceptual. In my point of, you know, if my frame of view, if I waste my time teaching you my details, they might not work for you. So my job is to give these broad brush strokes, and then I can help you hone in on what details make it work with your body type and your body abilities. So when you have this gymnasium with 150 or 200 people that you don't know at all, you can go into it with that same kind of concept of let's go through and try this. We're going to make giant mistakes. And then we're going to kind of build upon that as we go. I tend to always teach in threes. And so we show you plan A, and then it's never a matter of me dictating what I want you to do as an opponent. Uh, we talk about how you would naturally react. So it's not a matter of you making a mistake and me capitalizing on a mistake because black belts stop making mistakes. So we always build my techniques and my, my structure of my seminars based off of your appropriate response. So I do this, your options are go with what I did, or you hold back and you resist it. That resistance is still a motion that I can utilize. And so we go to plan B, which means uh, plan A, we take you to the left, you respond by driving right, I take you to the right, or maybe you don't respond at all and I have a response to that also. So it allows me to take these people who've never had a class with me or maybe be white belts or half of them are black belts or somewhere in between, and they can all come away with something that they can utilize from that seminar. You know, in the past, I've gone to so many seminars that have taught you, you know, this three hour long step-by-step -step process. And either you can never make it work because you're taught in, in a vacuum, or you just leave the seminar and you've forgotten what you learned. And so for me, those conceptual positions and those conceptual movements are the things that really hold true. So let's talk about um, this particular seminar that you did with Kay in particular. I noticed mm -hmm. uh, you did follow those aspects of three. Of course, yeah. Can you walk us through it? Because it was originally, it was what set up, and then you also took us through directionally. If opponent comes at you, if they come away, K is a very interesting guard in particular. Yeah, I think that the reason I started doing K guard was for leg locks. Yeah. The issue with that was it tends to be only taught for leg attacks. And so I wanted to find ways that I could utilize that position. I, I feel very comfortable there. I think that with a bigger opponent on top of me, I mean, I'm 135, 140 pounds. I can still maintain their weight. And I love it because it's an outside guard, right? So both feet are on the outside of my opponent's body. They're funneled towards closed guard, and it usually fails at close. And I talk about that multiple times in the seminar. So I always start off by teaching the leg lock entry. It tends to be the loosest entry, and it lets people really understand how their legs have to be utilized. We have this outside kind of leg that pummels underneath. And that really shelves our opponent's weight. And if we can't understand that first concept, then everything else with K is going to fail. Mm -hmm. And so we always start off with that leg lock entry. 
but I don't teach the heel hook because the, you know, the heel hook finish is, is a whole two hour seminar in a, you know, in and itself. So sure. we want to get somebody getting into that position. And then we talk about how we can use that, even if we're not allowed to heel hook, you know, and so it's still a great position for the gi. Uh, it works fantastic in the gi. And it's great if you're a white belt or anything in between, because I can use it to elevate and exit from the bottom either standing up to a neutral position or sweeping through like kind of like a knee tap double. So we talk about what happens when the person recognizes the heel exposure and they understand that to defend a heel hook or a leg lock in general, we're trying to keep our heel to our butt. If I can keep my heel to my butt, I can keep my weight down. I can't expose the heel or the leg for anything else. So that's the big crux of, of attacking the legs is getting the person's heel off their butt. If the person recognizes that they shut down a little bit, they lower their levels. And then we have our plan B, right? Our plan B, we're looking for wrist control and we're looking to get that overhook. It looks kind of like a Kimura, but realistically, it's just kind of an overhook with a wrist control via the underhook of the leg. So the appropriate response would be to shut it down by lowering your base, keeping your center of gravity nice and tight and nice and low to the ground. So I can't elevate you from here. You have to change levels, which is a lower level. And that helps me go into my flower type sweep. I mean, it's kind of an overhead sweep. It feels... Um, one of the prereqs we normally do for my seminar is showing me a flower sweep. I want everyone to show me a flower sweep because the motion, the, the pendulum motion and the way I do a flower sweep really helps with this. So that gets us into our overhead sweep, you know, and then we talk about maybe I can't get that person off balance, right? They're just too stable. And now I can look for the arm drag position and kind of pummel to the backside. Um, and that's always the one that everyone gives me the oohs and ahs because they don't really see it coming. And so, and I, and I love that. I think that, um, you know, getting that response of showing somebody something so new that they can be 45 minutes into a seminar and still that last kind of curtain is going to surprise them. So I love that. You did touch on and did show that, hey, for your lower belts who can't deal with the heel hooks, you can go to mount here. You can take the back yeah. here. That was really fascinating to see. So you, you gave options for those people where yeah. this can be, you know, a really good option to experiment with. Well, I, and I think it's great because, you know, at my academy, we do heel hooks at white belt, you know, so in the room, all submissions are encouraged and allowed at all times, but not all gyms do that. Not all academies enjoy that. And a lot of guys are preparing for tournaments and, and they want to make sure they're following the correct rule set. So instead of just saying, I'm going to completely eliminate this position so that I'm not practicing bad habits, let's find a way to kind of have baby steps into it. And now we're used to using K guard. We're used to getting a good load and, and diving underneath somebody. And now when it's time that we can implement our heel hooks for competition, all of our fundamentals are already there. So often we have guys who are brown belts who have just started doing leg locks, you know, because their academy was against it. And so they're so at a disadvantage, they're making mistakes that they didn't know were mistakes because historically they weren't mistakes. You know, I could put my foot there comfortably because there was no repercussions. And so we're just trying to eliminate those bad habits early and get our guys in that frame of mind that um, the entire body can be attacked at all times. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. You also did show, I think it was like a matrix entry too from K, correct? Yeah. So anytime we want to attack those legs, we're looking at, it's essentially a matrix entry. It works great in the gi. You know, matrix can be challenging. No gi. Uh, you have to really get a hold of the hips. And, and if you don't have long arms or if the person is elevated too high, you're reaching too much, you really can't get a hold of those hips. And so you go through all that motion and the person swings an underhook and they're, you know, they're, they're right back to center. So if you can stay nice and balled up, you can you know, get that top leg behind, 
lace in behind the uh, the hamstring. Uh, but with a gi, I can really grab a hold of that fabric and climb the back of the jacket. So uh, it's really important we understand that even though we often see K-guard, no gi, uh, it's very applicable in the gi. So that was fascinating that you touched on the flower sweep requirement. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I think that you know uh, there are several techniques that frustrate me with how they're taught. And I think that these white belts per se uh, uh, techniques like a flower sweep, I think that we learn them and then we kind of brush past them because maybe they're they're stuffed so easily, right? They're they're shut down so easily. But much like anything else, you know, an Americana is a is a fantastic submission if we can know how to do it correctly. The issue is we we think we know it and we move on. That doesn't work anymore. I stopped trying that. So a flower sweep for me really is such a beautiful technique and one that's underutilized and undertaught. And so we work on having this ability to turn flat on our back, right? We call it spinning on our turtle shell. And it works well for arm bars and setting up triangles. And anytime we have to cut an angle, it's really important. So with a flower sweep, we use this compass analogy. And so if I'm laying flat on my back and my head is facing north, my tail is facing south, and I have my, my west and my east, I need to make sure I'm really cutting big angles. And so with a flower sweep, I want to trap across arm and grab a lat. And then from there, I have to really understand that if I want to push a table over, I push it towards the leg that's missing, correct? Right? So I want to make sure I'm really getting able to turn on my turtle shell and get all the way, almost 180 degree turn. And that really makes for a really dynamic overhead flower sweep. And if we can master that, it makes all of our submissions, all of our attacks off of our guard so much stronger. And, and it's such a clean, clear technique to learn. Visually, you can see everything that's happening. And so we try to find these techniques that lead us to success in other techniques. And I think a flower sweep is one of those pivotal moments where like, if we can master the flower sweep, it's going to really open up all of our leg dexterity, our back mobility, and it's going to help us with our inverted guard and getting into the legs. It's really, for me, it's one of those kind of pivotal moments in jiu-jitsu. If I can get a good flower sweep, then I'm able to understand mechanically how a lot of other positions work. It's essentially sort of fundamental to you, it sounds like. It is. And I think that, you know, I think a lot of the fundamental positions that we learn aren't necessary. I think that, you know, we, we will naturally find those in jiu-jitsu. And so in my opinion, the fundamentals need to be these simple, but at the same time, complex movements that are foundational to other techniques, right? And so we're not just saying, hey, you know, learn how to staple somebody in cross sides. Yes, it's a very foundational movement. But if I never taught you how to control from cross sides, you would eventually figure it out. You know, you would, you would hold someone down. You understand that they can't look towards you. So you have shoulder pressure and those types of things. So uh, we don't waste a lot of time learning that. And I think that the positions like, again, the flower sweep is such a dynamic motion that really I, find, I think spider webs off into every technique we do from guard. Mm-hmm. And it's such an easy thing to teach, you know, and, and, and that's the crux of it. We can't have these dynamic, intricate guard positions that are beneficial, but complicated to teach. And so we have to try to break it down to, let me find one technique that kind of encompasses all of our guard work that is visual that somebody can look at it and see what's happening because you know k guard's a little complicated because you're so bundled up you know and so you can't really see all the nuances of k guard mm-hmm. but with a flower sweep everything's out in the open and so i can see i can feel and i can understand the response immediately and if i do it right that person can be 300 pounds and feel like it's effortless and so your tactile response is so immediate 
you know, you know that you did it right or, you know, you've messed it up because the person's giant and you can't move them. So we, we messed something up. But if I can turn my body enough and I can wind their arm around them, then they just kind of fall naturally into that void. And we know that we've had a good, successful flower sweep. And that's going to help us down the line. Let's talk about the academy or academies your experience because you've ran a couple of them now, it sounds like. Yeah. Walk me through the process of I'm a new student, I'm walking in, I know I'm casting a broad net here. What can I expect day one and then just sort of continue on? We kind of have this 90-10 rule, right? I would expect you to retain 10% of what I teach, right? 90% of the class, I'm okay if you miss all those things, right? I want you to understand this overwhelming kind of broad brushstroke. And so we do have fundamental classes that happen in the mornings, but if you're in my class, I never teach to the lowest common denominator, right? I'm mm. teaching... Um, teaching how I want to teach regardless of who's in my class. And, and we're a very new academy. So we've had days where, you know, I'm going to do, you know, matrix back takes. And this is, you know, day one for this guy. And he's walking in and he's like, what is going, going on? on? You yeah. know? <laughs> and so, uh, uh, but we do have this white belt curriculum uh, on my YouTube page. We have our white belt flow. It's very similar to how 10th planet runs their warmups. We do one for gi and one for no gi for every belt level. And so I'll come in and I'll say, hey, I want to see our blue belt flow. Let's go. And the guys run through this blue belt flow or this white belt flow. And uh, they're expected to have that down. That really is going to be the foundation. And it's something that I put a lot of thought into. And I would say it's not a literal translation of jujitsu. It's more a, a flow of techniques that are situational that have a basis in reality, though. So it's not just weird monkey movements. They're all practical things. So we tend to get people right into that. Um, you know, I have a gymnastics background. And so all my guys are doing cartwheels and handstands and, and all that stuff. And so, yeah, you'll see a room full of 40 year old IT guys who've never done a cartwheel in their life and they're doing wow. cartwheels. And wow. so every class we do a big focus on those, those line drills to get warmed up like every academy does for the most part. But we do a lot of gymnastics types things just to have our body doing the right things. You know, we'll often do multiple variations of somersaults. So we'll have a body lock from standing and we'll do partner forward rolls. So I have your back, you do a forward roll, I forward roll with you. Wow. We go back to a stand up, you know, so I can't let go. My hands have to be attached to you the whole time. Wow. We'll do the same thing from, you know, from like referee's position or from like turtle position where I'll have a, a body lock or a seatbelt and you forward roll and I roll with you, you know? So understanding that we have to move with a person in a dynamic way is really, really important in our academy. Let's expand on that gymnastics background because I've read that yeah. and it's quite extensive. Can you talk about your experience in gymnastics and its relation or not to jujitsu and how it may or may not benefit? Yeah, so, you know, I've, I've had a, a very athletic life. And so my grandfather owned a karate school. So I grew up doing Kempo karate. I wrestled for about 10 years. I'm from Ohio, so we kind of had to. And then I did gymnastics. I started gymnastics when I was pretty young. I competed all over the nation. At one point, I was top 10 in the nation as a 17-year-old. I was scouted and supposed to go to Penn State. I spent every summer throughout high school training with the Penn State men's team. And uh, at the last second, I got scared and joined the Army. And so, <laughs> but... You know, when I started jujitsu, I really had this idea that my wrestling was going to be my foundation for jujitsu. Uh, and I quickly found that it, it was my gymnastics. You know, the, the gymnastics is really, really key here. And I think that the biggest thing that I've realized is in wrestling, you never have an open weight class match, right? And so there's never a time when you got a 135 or face in the heavyweight at a tournament. 
like you roll in the room a little bit, but wrestling is typically done five to 10 pounds of your natural weight. And so wrestling can work, but it tends to fail when you're outweighed by a substantial amount. So the skills that I learned in gymnastics were really, really at the forefront of everything I do. And looking back, everything I've done in my life athletically, whether it be you know skateboarding or snowboarding or any of that stuff, I was always naturally very good at. And uh, I, can, I can remember growing up and having kids say, well, you know, of course you're good at that. You were a gymnast to the point where it, it embarrassed me. When I would snowboard, I would never do flips on a snowboard because I thought that if I did it, they would say, well, of course Mike can do that because he was a gymnast. And it took me until my adult life to understand that like, I worked very hard to establish those skills, you know? And so I wasn't gifted a gymnastics background, you know, like I, I earned that. And so it translated so well immediately, the things that the body control, the strength to weight ratio, and just understanding how to keep myself safe. I mean, we spend an enormous amount of time in gymnastics falling down, you know, gymnastics. It's one of those few sports where getting better is scarier, right? Like you, you could play basketball all the way from your driveway to the NBA and it never gets scarier. Like your threat of injury never increases, but with gymnastics to get better, everything gets higher and faster and, and more rotations. And so you have mats on the ground, but it hurts. And so you learn how to keep yourself safe. I mean, we, we literally practice falling down. And so keeping myself safe in a role has always had to be at the forefront. I mean, in an academy as a 135 pound adult male, I'm pretty small. I mean, if I get a guy who's 160, that's a guy my size, but it's not, you know, it's still substantially larger. And so understanding that there are things that I might want to do that I can't do because the threat of injury is too high. And so uh, keeping myself safe was a direct correlation to, to gymnastics. And so that's what I've really taken from it. Yeah, I thought this a long time ago, too. Early on 10th Planet, Eddie Bravo was talking about like Geo and Boogeyman, who were breakdancers, but essentially they're yeah. gymnasts, right? And I would see, and I had a breakdancing background to some extent, too. I would see other breakdancers, and I'm like, these guys are just gymnasts, you know? It's sort of yeah. a lot what they're doing. So I would see it translate to jujitsu, and it just seemed like hand in glove. Yeah, and I think that it's just, you have to be so aware of what your body's doing. You know, I mean, so often we we find these guys who, you know, maybe they're, they're, maybe they're a purple belt. And uh, as a coach, I can say, Hey, I need you to move your left arm and, and they move their right arm, you know, or they just can't make, they just can't make a body part move mm -hmm. when they need to, you know? And I think that teaching functional movement, which is something I also do is mm -hmm. such a huge component in that, because we try to exploit that weakness of the simple things. Like if I tell you to do a bear crawl, but a, a bear crawl in a very specific way where I have these multiple complications to the simple movement, are you able to make your body move that way? And I think that breakdancing and gymnastics really force you to understand exactly what your body feels like, you know, and then you gain a tactile response that feels like your hands all over your body, mm -hmm. right? And so my hip can feel like my hand because I, I can use my hip in a way that holds somebody the same as my hand does. My feet work like my hands. And so I say it to my students, I really feel like I've got hundreds of hands all over my body, you know, and, and a lot of people just don't have that, that ability to feel things through unnatural parts of their body. It seems like the most obvious one that I've seen is 
lack of hit mobility, where it becomes most obvious is something like a back take of some sort of back control or when you try to trap the arm with your leg. You know how it's yeah, a struggle. Yeah. You guys got to check out Mike's uh, YouTube channel. It's it's fantastic. You've got competition footage on there. You've got instructional type of footage on there. Your mobility stuff that you're adding is great. Please more of that. Yeah. Um, and I notice like a lot of these people that do have that great mobility that sort of ties into BJJ. A lot of the AOJ guys, uh, just that fluid movement. You know, I mean, even sure. guard passing and things like that. Yeah, I, I think it's just the future of where the sport's going. You know, I think that the days of the guys being able to just to walk past your guard in, in a heavy dominating pressure and then hold you down and submit you against your will, I think the guys are just getting too good for that. And I think having mobility and understanding how you can, uh, you know, the Mendez brothers do a great job of saying like, even when I'm floating past your guard, it's still pressure. Hmm. right? It's still forward pressure. It's just a different kind of pressure, you know? Right. So you're utilizing the movement and, and the fluidity and the body mechanics to apply forward downward pressure to get past the guard in a more modern way. And I think that that really is where things have to go. I think that we have to have gymnastics and breakdance level competitors that are, are, are going to push the pace and, and make these things work when it's better. I think that, you know, you can impose your will on a guy at the gas station, right? I, I can, I can take him down. I can pass his guard. I can hold him in mount, but I don't want to get good at fighting the guy at the gas station. You know, I think that if, if we were here to learn self-defense, self-defense jujitsu can be learned in 18 months. You're done, right? At, at a blue belt, you're pretty good at self-defense. Anything after that, you're learning the sport of jujitsu. And I think that the reason we have longevity in our sport is because it's not strictly a self-defense platform. If it was, we would get so bored. I mean, it'd be no different than Taekwondo or karate where I'm going to get my black belt in three years. And that's just something I did in the past. And, and I'm, I'm beyond it. Jiu-Jitsu allows us to have that same connection from day one to day 10,000 because the creativity is there and, and the, the movement is there. And we're always exploring new things. And we're always trying to find a way to make it work against a guy who also knows how to make it not work. And so that's what allows us to continually evolve. And I think we're seeing a giant evolution in the sport right now. Hmm. And I think it comes back to the guys being more athletic and more dynamic and more understanding of how movement works. I mean, think about like a guy like Jeff Glover, you know, a guy like Jeff Glover, he was able to exploit this at the perfect time where right. he's part of this generation that was still trying to do Gracie jujitsu, you know, and then he comes in and does some weird monkey stuff sure. and it caught guys off guard. And that's not to take away from what he's able to do. He's, he's incredible. But the same with 10th planet, Eddie Bravo came in and he's doing, it's really like you have two different sports happening at once. You know, Eddie Bravo is competing against guys who are doing Gracie jujitsu and then he does this thing that's completely different, but it still falls within the same rules. But he's able to do things that are catching people in ways they didn't think they could be caught. And that all comes from his ability to move and, and his creativity. And that is what's going to spark this revolution, I think, in jujitsu. Yeah, look at Gary Tonin too. Yeah, know. yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it's fascinating that you bring that up because it, it is it does feel like a, a very transitionary time, right? I mean, there there are these sort of if you want to call them old school or people mm -hmm. that that just live in the in the fundamentals and the foundational type of stuff and just and and that's what it is. Hey, and whatever different strokes for different folks, that's fine. 
but then you see all this other stuff too that is happening as well and they're incorporating a lot of that obviously the fundamental stuff because I, I don't think at the mm -hmm. highest levels you can <laughs> obviously be the best without that but on sure, top of that of as course. well you have these additional sort of uh, swords as well yeah and i think that like the most apparent thing that i see in regards to that is you know there are guys uh Rafael lovato jr is a great example right yes. so he does fu very fundamental old school jiu-jitsu at the highest levels and he's still winning yeah. he's still dominating guys you know he, he's the fight to win guy all the time mm -hmm. and he's winning the difference is those people tend to not make any money and i think that what we're seeing is guys like gary tunnan and uh, all these up and coming dynamic athletic competitors are the guys who keep getting invited to these shows and i mm -hmm. think that people don't understand that this is absolutely an entertainment business mm. And if it's not fun to watch, no one's going to watch it. You know, the reason why people say stand them up in the UFC is because the guys are just holding somebody down. You know, nobody says stand them up when a guy's playing guard actively and like going for submissions and doing weird stuff, you know? And so you'll see that there's this large contingency of old school guys that are dominating and are still winning, but they're not getting signed contracts to do professional matches. And I think that, as a promoter, I would have to say, who do people want to pay to watch, you know? And, and I think it's these guys who are doing fun matches. And I think that you can go out there and you can have, you know, a loss, but you can walk away with a contract because you were fun to watch. I mean, my first submission underground match, I lost, but it was a super fun match. And everyone said, I want to see that guy again. You know, we had a great back and forth. It was, you know, it could have gone either way. I got submitted going for a submission, you know, but I'm of the mind that I would much rather lose entertaining than go out kind of being safe. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, if the guys would really understand that, that you have to put on a show and you can, you can still do fantastic jujitsu, but you have to go out there and be willing to lose and put it on the line and, and make it entertaining. Uh, if you want to keep pursuing this path of like a professional athlete in jujitsu. So that's where I see the big changing of the guard is mm. you have these guys who are going to continue and guys will still continue to win, you know, gi world championships by doing fundamentals. But besides the people who spend money for flow grappling, like you're not going to get people who are, are just casually going to watch jujitsu to watch a gi match from Masters Worlds. Like it's just probably not going to happen. I was just talking to Danny Stolfi, a former art of jujitsu black belt who now runs Breathe Academy in the East Coast. We were talking about this to some extent too, the cachet or the importance or the perceived importance of what used to be certain sort of events like ADDC, right, or PANS or IBJJF Worlds type of thing or, or whatever it may be. And how that's sort of potentially shifting now with all these other events, like you said, like what if the importance isn't going to that? Maybe what if like this is becoming more important or entertaining or taking the eyes away, right? Sure. Uh, getting more relevance, whether it's a mission underground or a combat jujitsu, what have you. And so all these people that sort of hung their belts and the, the importance of their particular uh, themselves on these traditional events. Sure. Like, it's interesting that you're sort of relating the two. Yeah. And I think that you could have, you know, if you got, a, if you have a guy who is a four or five time masters world champion, you know, in a bracket of three people, and he had, you know, a guy who was an accountant that showed up to grapple him, you know, and, and he wins world champ. It, it, it's awesome. It's great. But I promise you that guy could be a four time masters world champion. And if he gets invited to submission underground, submission underground goes to the top of his Instagram profile. Hmm. 
I think that those are the matches that people are saying, hey, this is where I'm going to hang my, my, my crown on. I've competed once in a points tournament ever, wow. one time, and I won by submission. And so, like, <laughs> you know, I've never, I've never actually won by points in anything, never lost by points either. And so I've always been of that mindset that I, I want to do the entertaining stuff, you know, and I've been lucky enough, you know, we have a great promotion. It's called Sub League, and it happens in Oregon. And there's seven or eight sub league events every year, and there's submission only round robin tournaments. And so growing up in jujitsu in Portland, Oregon, most people are competing in a sub only style. And so uh, I love it. I love I love the idea that we are having this change to where we're having more sub only events. I really think those are going to be what draw the crowds in, you know, and I think that if we ever want to have these guys, aside from Gordon Ryan, you have other guys who are, you know, you, you can be top 50 in the UFC and you still make decent money. Maybe not what you should make, but you're still making enough to not have a day job. And I would love to have that happen with jujitsu. And I think it only happens if we can grow the sport to an outside audience. I would have to imagine 95% of UFC fans have never grappled or never trained any martial arts in their life. They just watch the fights, you know? Yeah, and I sure. think that when you watch an event like Submission Underground, it's funny, my wife absolutely hates it because she can't stand Chael's commentary. Mm. And I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people in grappling kind of feel that way. But mm. he appeals to the guys who are flipping through Fight Pass and they go, oh, what's this? Oh, I know Chael's son and I'm going to watch this. And I think mm. he does a fantastic job of relating it to the every person mm. and in a way that sometimes makes us as athletes go, ooh, really? You know, mm. but the reality is he's making it better for everyone. You know, it's one of those things where you you want to keep it in its pure form and, and keep jujitsu real. But you also have to understand that, like, there are people there who can make a living and there is it's a fantastic martial art that should be appealing to the masses. And there has to be some evolution or some divergent from the normal or the, the, the historic kind of aspect of it in order for it to grow in popularity and in overall technique and skill level. Everything gets better with more eyes on it, in my opinion. Yeah, it's a very contemporary take on it. It's uh, refreshing to hear it. I think so. I mean, I mean, I started jiu-jitsu seven years ago. Uh, but I know that when I started jiu-jitsu, I had a professor who was pretty excited about having different color geese because a couple of years ago, you could buy a white and a black gi or a blue gi and that's it. And then I had, you know, a professor who was adamant that deep half guard wasn't going to be a thing. Well, it is. Or Baron Bolos, who say, hey, you know, don't do not do that. You're wasting your time. Sure, sure. And so I, I just can't imagine a time with the last seven plus the next three, a time frame in the hundred year existence of jujitsu where you're going to see more growth. You're going to see things that are going to fail. You know, you're going to see things that people don't like, and you're going to see events that leave a sour taste in your mouth. And I think that that's just part of adolescence, right? You make mistakes and you try things and you're going to have the old guy on the couch saying, don't do that. It's a terrible idea. And you're going to say, what do you know, old man? I'm going to try this and, and he'll be right or he'll be wrong. And that's what I love. You know, I've never been against something new. I mean, I did the first ever tag team match for Submission Underground four years ago. I think I've done three tag team matches for them now. I did the first ever jiu-jitsu overtime with Eddie Bravo. And that was an event that I wasn't a fan before showing up. And then I got there and uh, it was weird. You know, it was a very unique situation where there is no feeling out presses. You got a guy in your back right away. Crazy. So on one of the early combat jiu-jitsu tournaments. So I'll try anything. I think we should be open to exploring new fields and new, new things in jiu-jitsu 
because all it does is add to the overall platform. I mean, mm-hmm. we're going to weed things out that didn't work. I think Third Coast did a, a battle royale. A new kid came in every minute or whatever. We actually talked about that for Submission Underground. And we thought it was just not, you know, not the best idea. You know, it's entertaining. It's fun. And I think that you have to understand that you're allowed to have fun in jujitsu. You're allowed to do things that are weird. You're allowed to have an event that is just for fun. I mean, some guys go out there and take the tag team very seriously. You know, I was always a, of the mind that this is silly. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a loss on your record. It's just go out there and do, you know, be entertaining and have everyone laugh and yell at the TV. And, and that's how we wanted it to be. You know, our original conversation for that was this is like intermission. This is a break from the tough matches for something fun. And I think that we saw that when it got to the Craig Jones and uh, Nikki Rod tag team match versus Kyle Bame and Vinny, they put $25,000 on the line. And you see what happens when you add that type of reward to a silly event. It takes away all the fun. Yeah. Look at the success of Quintet or, you know, yeah. Team USA versus UK, that whole thing. It's very exciting, really fun. People get invested in teams, you know, when- Yeah. Jiu-Jitsu is traditionally sort of like a one-person type of event. Sure. I love the team event. I mean, I did one for a World Series of Fighting. They called it Submission One. It actually was the first ever cable TV televised grappling event. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing, you know? And then Bullpen Submission Series here in Tucson, held by 10th Planet Tucson. We did a, a quintet for them. It's just a fun event. So with the quintet at Bullpen, uh, I weighed in at 135. If your opponent is more than 30 pounds heavier than you, you can opt for a five-minute match or the full eight-minute match. So uh, it's kind of a unique play on it. But these are matchups that just wouldn't ever happen. I mean, my right. second match was a guy named Ian Salser from 10th Planet Walnut Creek, I think. You know, he was 200 pounds. And uh, I'm like, hey, cool. Let's go out there and see what happens, you know? And then you have these unique matchups that I think are just really interesting. I mean, I'm a big proponent of fighting in your weight class, but... Why not also have things that are just unique? I don't know. I, I, I want to have as much fun with this as I possibly can. What drew me to jiu-jitsu early on was it was so much fun. And uh, I just never want to lose that. I take it very seriously. I mean, it, it's all I do for life. But I still want to have fun with it. Yeah, it sounds like Mike's a space monkey, you guys. So you can shoot him into space, run experiments <laughs> on him. He's up for it, whatever. You so, call me, uh, I'm saying yes. Let's talk about your competitions and uh, your particular style, because for what I've observed is my quick anecdotal look at, at a handful of your competitions. It's interesting because you brought up the wrestling background, and I wouldn't have taken that unless you said that. I wouldn't have been aware of that because I see you uh, playing bottom a lot, and uh, I don't know if it's pulling guard or what. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I don't tend to, I can't think of a single match that I've ever pulled guard. Okay. So I like to play on the bottom and I like to counter wrestle. And so- uh, You seem like a counter puncher. Yeah, 100%. I'm not a proponent of forcing you to do anything you don't want to do. Hmm. Uh, I, in, in my opinion, it's my job as an intellectual to know more than you, not to be stronger than you. And so I still work out every day. I'm pretty strong for my size, but I like to lure you in. And so from the feet, I tend to be just as frustrating as I possibly can be. I want you to understand that. And we teach our guys this. If you and I have a match, you approach me with your plan A, right? Always, no matter where we're at, like you, you go to what you're the best at. If I can shut that down, then you go to your plan B, which you're inherently less effective at. If I can shut plan B down, you go to plan C. So I'm looking for the shutdown, the shutdown, the shutdown. Now you're on plan D. And now you're doing things that you're not really great at, but you're getting 
anxious. You, you have to move. And so that's when you make a mistake or you go for a shot that's not great. And I think that you know, the beauty of jujitsu is I can prepare my attack on the way to the ground. Mm-hmm. And so if I pull guard, we are sitting to a neutral position where you and I both have an equal platform to play from. If I do a takedown on you, I think that in my minimal research, most takedowns don't end in a beneficial situation. So if I take you down and I land in your closed guard, then I am in a defensive position, right? From closed guard, I can only be defensive. My offense is restricted to moving to an offensive location. I can't attack you from your guard. So I went from us being neutral on the feet to me being defensive on the ground. So I don't view that as as any benefit at all, aside from getting points if you're in a point situation. Furthermore, if I take you down and you land in guard with an angle, maybe an overhook and an angle, now you're even at a better position to attack from. If you're aware enough and situationally there that you can plan it as you fall to the ground. Right. So conversely, I take that same uh, same approach. I want you to take me down because on the way down, you're falling to the ground. You're probably celebrating the takedown and I'm already planning my guard. And Mm -hmm. so I think it's a much more effective place to start guard play Mm -hmm. than just starting from a neutral pulling of guard. Yeah. At one point, too, uh, one gentleman, he tried to jump guard onto you and then he gave up that and then you ended up jumping into a triangle on him. Yeah. And I was like, holy, wow, that's a that's a great position. You can work up. And little did I know, so, uh, slams were allowed in this yeah, yeah. particular tournament. Yeah. And then you get slammed, Which is, and you I'm know, like, wow. <laughs> the funny thing, you know, that, that was at Fight to Win in Portland a few years back. And, uh, you know, Fight to Win, Submission Underground, any of the events that happen on a stage, the slams sound really impactful, but they're not. I mean, they, uh, you know, you really have to hit somebody just right. You know, I spent my whole life falling down. And so getting slammed is not that big of a deal. It's funny, maybe you can't notice it in the video, but I I actually looked at the kid and I kind of smiled at him. I knew he was going to slam me and I was kind of giving him the nod of approval. Like, yeah, Uh, let's go. Let's do this. So I'm a huge proponent of slams. I think that they are are really a, a good thing to do. I think that it keeps us true. At one point, the EBI rule set did not allow slams, but he described it as he respects the slam. So if you have me in a triangle, if I elevate you past waist high, you have to let go to our feet. Hmm. So it's kind of saying, hey, like you're, you're about to get messed up. So let's recognize that and let's reset to a neutral position because I essentially escaped anyway. And I love that. I think that like if you have a tournament in a gymnasium, you know, with zebra mats on the ground, you don't want to allow slams there. You know, that, that's just it's, it's too it's too nasty. But if I can pick you up and I can threaten a slam, to me, that equals an escape. And I, and I thought that that rule set was fantastic. Back to the academy and sort of your philosophy yeah. on it. What's unique about your academy? I think that, you know, just my approach to it, even going into like my coaching staff, we do a lot of coaching education. I do my very best to be at every instructor's class, take the class with them. And I give them feedback, positive and negative, every single class. And so there is a very particular way that I want jujitsu taught. And there is a certain nomenclature and a certain set of things that we do that I want implemented in every class. And so we just had a great guy named Raph move out here. He's a Henzo Gracie black belt. He's been training twice as long as I have been a black belt twice as long as I've been a black belt. He still looks to me for critique. 
And I'm brutally honest. If I don't like a class at all, I tell them that this was a bad class. And I think that you so often get instructors that have day jobs and nothing against that. I understand that this is not a career for a lot of people, but they come into class in the evening and they're not prepared or their mind is still at work and they just kind of go through the motions. And in many cases, they're just reiterating what they were taught, which in turn was just copied from what that person was taught. And so um, there's very little evolution in a lot of coaching. I think a lot of times what happens is the guys who go to open mat or the guys who stay after class, they're the ones evolving the techniques. The coaches just come in, they're either on their phone or they just repeat what they were taught. One of the things that we laugh about in academies as an instructor is when that guy in, in the class says, yeah, but coach, what if, you know, and he says, well, you know, well, of course, I love that question. I absolutely love it. I want you to question everything I do. Because if I don't have the answer, then I'm not doing my job. I should have an answer to every position. And if I don't, I'm going to say, listen, I don't know. Let's play with this. And I'll stop the whole class and we'll, and we'll figure it out. Because I think that that growth and that, that desire to keep it honest and really to understand is so important. And it's such an overlooked thing by a lot of academies. And I don't fault them for that. I think that you have to deal with whatever your situation is. I'm lucky enough that for seven years, I have never had a job. I've never had a focus that wasn't coaching and running an academy. Uh, on top of that, I've been coaching since I was 15 years old. I mean, I've coached gymnastics. I've coached skateboarding. I've coached snowboarding. I've coached everything. And so I've been working with people on how to understand motion my entire life. I mean, I'm 40 years old. So all my life I've been coaching. And I think that I put such a heavy burden on that. I don't think about it lightly at all. There's not a day that I'm not researching and trying to understand how to show something better. And if I find a better way, I implement it immediately. And I think that that's what I want my gym to be known for. Or like when you come to my academy and take a class from me, I want you to understand that like I'm striving for absolute mastery, not in performance, but in understanding the, the position and the hows and whys of it. So we always are teaching in that rule of threes. We're always saying, I'm going to make this attempt because this attempt is something that I'm able to create. So going back to K-Guard, when I teach K-Guard, I call it lazy K, right? We go to a lazy, lazy K, K position because I can always force lazy K no matter what. If I can find closed guard, I can get to my lazy K position. If you choose to not engage my K guard from there, that's on you. I'm not going to force you to do that. If you come into me, now I have an answer for that. Now the conversation has begun. And so it's my job to now teach you response A, response B, response C, based off appropriate responses, not off of mistakes. And so we try to keep that same rule with every class that we teach. And it's never, uh, I'm, I'm going to pin his leg to the ground and hold him here. It's I'm going to push his leg this way. He's either going to let me or he's going to respond by pulling it back away from me or pushing it into me. And this is how I'm going to parry and move the technique from there. So we try to really encourage an, a more intellectual approach to the jiu-jitsu and less step-by-step -step processes and more functional kind of foundational movements. That's interesting that you saw that correlation. I immediately thought when you were talking about the what ifs, what ifs, it correlated to your very jujitsu game where you essentially you take what they give you. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't like to be stronger. I mean, like I, I save my strength for the kill. 
So I might grab risk control and I might look for uh, a Kimura entry, but I have no satisfaction in breaking your grip. You know, so if I go to arm bar you and, and I sweep you and I'm on top and I have an arm bar and you have your, your gable grip together, uh, to me, there, there's just little reward in being able to break your grip. I just don't personally find that there is hundred percent value in it, but I don't personally enjoy that. And so I want to go back several steps and think, how can I hyperextend your arm when it's already straight, right? How can I manipulate you enough to where you put your arm straight and now you're being arm barred before you have an opportunity to set up a defense. And so for me, even when I roll professionally in a professional match, it's catch and release. I want to feel things out. I'm going to grab it. And then I know that if I'm prepared, all movement benefits me, right? So that's kind of how I go into it. So even if you defend, that's movement. And if I know how to utilize that movement, it benefits me. If I don't, then I have to revert back to a neutral situation, which I want to never get there, right? I want to start this, this train in motion. Uh, and then as you defend this, I'm going to let you defend that, but I'm already catching the next thing, right? And the next thing and the next thing, I want to keep you defending and keep you feeling like everything you do is wrong. Right. I think that's where I feel the most reward in jujitsu is when you roll with me and you say, I can't move because everything is wrong. And to me, there's no greater reward than that. Going back to the teaching itself, too, we've talked to several competitive champions in, and who now have opened their own academies, right? And they're beginning their journey there and they're realizing the daunting task of, although I've taught since I was blue belt or purple belt, maybe at a particular sport academy or whatever doing it myself now in this in this type of environment where it's it's my thing it's a new journey it's a new path it's a new yeah. road to just teaching and getting proficient in teaching it's one thing to be a world class champion black belt yeah. it's another sure. thing to be an effective teacher yeah so, i 100% and i think that like you know one of the issues we have with academies is we tend to assume that a world class competitor can teach right or we tend to assume that a black belt of any class is a business owner. So you have three very different skill sets coming together. I have to be able to demonstrate to my members that I can still kick their ass, right? Like I have to make sure that I can still fight them every day, which is increasingly harder as I get older and older, right? But they have to at least- with Dan or her. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, for sure. But his mastery of the skill is so high in that part of this triangle, right? And so I have no idea what his business mindset is. He's never really been in a situation where he was the owner of an academy. So we, we haven't seen that side from him point. and we haven't really seen the competitive side of him, which he mm -hmm. concedes no problem, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I look at him as like a Bill Belichick, you know, who's, who's not going to go out there and hit pads with somebody and like, or, you know, tackle somebody, but he knows the game, you know? I mean, you have a lot of these coaches in pro sports that have never played, True. you know, and, but they have a complete mastery of it. The challenge that we have so often is I have to do all three unless I have this absurdly mastery of the skill set that Donaher has, you know, and so I can be a great competitive black belt and I can be a very good coach, but if I can't operate a business, I don't get to demonstrate what I have because the business fails before I have an opportunity to have it grow or before I have the opportunity to let my members or let people outside of my immediate area know who I am. And so it's a, it's this juggling act of all three, you know, and, and for me, I don't know how you for me, <laughs> it's hard. And I think that for me, I was still trying to make my name in the professional grappling scene, which I viewed as absolutely like, Im, you know, imperative for my success as a business owner. 
when I moved to Arizona, I didn't know a single person here. I mean, mm-hmm. we moved here. That's it. We moved here. And we opened an academy three weeks after moving here. We opened the academy uh, with no members, none. Wow. And so I was of the mindset that why would anyone want to train with me? No one has any reason to want to train with me. And so going back two years before that, when I, you know, when I opened my academy six years ago in Oregon, I had a black belt instructor who was my business partner. And so it gave me the opportunity to get my toes wet and kind of feel out what it's like to own an academy, how it runs. But I had a safety net. I mean, not only did I have a black belt instructor, I also had a network. Impact has, you know, 13 schools in Oregon. And so if I needed coverage, I just called one of our 50 black belts and they came out and covered. And so I knew I was moving. We had about an 18 month notice that I was going to be moving. And that's when I said, hey, I've got to I've got to get some content out there. Historically, I, I wasn't I wasn't a great self promoter, yeah. and it was very hard to put yourself out there. Especially, I was a purple belt at the time. I said, "How do I how do I put out content when I don't know anything, you know, or or I know something, but people are going to look at the color of my belt and say, what does he know, you know?'" And so for me, that was when I started doing the technique of the week video for Bridge City Fight Shop, and the whole idea of that was I was going to be the host of the show. And I was going to have a new black belt on every weekend. And then they taught a technique. I was there to help engage with them and kind of make it a 10 minute long segment. And so I was able to kind of get myself out there. It made me look really good because they were great instructors and I was piggybacking off of them. And it helped me kind of tread the water a little bit. From there, I said, okay, I've got to get out of my comfort zone with competition. I mean, I competed once as a white belt, once as a blue belt, and once as a purple belt. That's it. You know, it wasn't really what I enjoyed doing, but I knew I had to go for it. You know, I was lucky enough that I was in the right place at the right time with Submission Underground. So SUG 2, that was uh, John Jones versus Dan Henderson was the main event. That was the first pro event I, I was ever a part of. And so I was backstage with Misha Tate and John Jones and all these, you know, it was incredible. From there, I was able to pick up a couple of other shows and then it kind of snowballed. And so uh, I think I did 10 pro fights the year that I moved to Arizona. And that was at least some content. Somebody could Google me and say, okay, who is this guy? Why should I learn jujitsu from him? Mm. And so it kind of put me out there a little bit and uh, we just kind of kept rolling with that. But you know, the, the downside of that was the first event I competed at, which was, uh, it was a local tournament up in Oregon. Oh, we mentioned it before called sub league. I was a Brown belt. I competed in the Gi, and I went into that tournament with only rolling with two white belts who were brand new for six months. I had not touched anybody who was even decent at jujitsu. Then I went and competed. You know, it was terrifying. I thought, how am I going to compete against these guys when all I've done was teach Americanas for six months, you know, and and I've never actually had a fight in, in six months. And so it was tough, you know, and still finding that balance of being able to compete on the professional circuit, you know, world-class guys, and become home and coach and run a business, it's really, really challenging. Is competing for you professionally at a really high level really important to you? No, it's not. So I did my first tournament three weeks into training. So I joined my gym and it was a tournament literally three weeks later. And I said, I'm going to do this. And mm-hmm. so I got destroyed. It was awful. I got beat up horribly. It was a terrible, terrible choice. But I knew from that moment that like, I wanted to be a great coach. You know, I started jujitsu at 33 years old. 
And so while not old, you know, I wasn't old, but I was already older than a lot of the competitors, sure, you know? Sure. And so I knew my time was finite. I knew right. that there's going to be a limit on what I can do. And how um, old are you now, may I ask? I'm 40. Okay. And so, you know, a, a funny old guy story. When I was at Combat Worlds, we were on the beach and we were all hanging out, all the competitors. And uh, this was before the event. And uh, Nick Honstein, who was on the event, he came over to me and said, hey, nice to meet you. You know, I had never met him before. And he said, you know, it's really nice to have somebody else who's a little bit older on the card. He's like, I, I get tired of being the old guy around here. Mm-hmm. And I laughed. I said, well, you know, thank, I, you know, I appreciate it. And I asked him how old he was. He was 33 years old. And so, you know, he was still seven years younger than me. And, and he was the elder statesman of the event. And so it is tough. But ultimately, like, I wanted my competition to be a means to the end, right? And so now that I have that, you know, if Eddie Bravo calls, I'm, I'm going to say yes, hmm. you know, but I'm not actively seeking the events like I was at one point. I get to spend my time traveling now. I mean, I leave for a, a European trip here, October 7th. And right. so I'm teaching seminars in Ireland and in France and in Switzerland and Poland. And so I've reached a certain point that I'm comfortable with that's going to allow me to, to teach at an international level and grow my academy. And I think that that is because of my ability to get out there and compete. But I, I don't really see it as a necessity at this point. I just enjoy doing it, man. I think if I were to keep my, you know, my academy now, our town is 18,000 people. We're surrounded by a reservation. We're not getting people coming from 20 miles away. It's people who are in my town who are doing jiu-jitsu. If I were to never grow beyond that community, I'd be super happy. Can you name the town? Fountain Hills, Arizona. We're about 10 miles east of Scottsdale. We're near Phoenix in Scottsdale, but still far enough out where, you know, there are people in Scottsdale who have never heard of our town, but I love it. I love, I love that. I love my people. I love my community. You know, we were the first jujitsu gym ever in this town. And so I think a big part of being a black belt in jujitsu is being able to spread jujitsu to a new community and, and introduce it and put your stamp on it. You know, in a hundred years, Impact Jiu-Jitsu will be the first gym in this town. And I love that. And, and I'd be completely content with that level of scaling. Having said that, like I'm doing everything I possibly can do to get the information that I think is valuable out to people who want to do it. At some point along the journey, people decided that my information was relevant. And uh, I am more than happy to accommodate that and kind of spread what I think is important in jujitsu. And I think it works well as a supplement to your academy. I think that if you are traveling to see me or you pay for a seminar for me, I'm going to have a lot of information that you can bring back home and implement into your game immediately. And it's a, a great way to supplement what you already have and what you're already getting from your home instructor. In your eyes, what makes a great BJJ student? I think that, you know, if I'm looking at a person coming into it from day one, I think the willingness to just move and just to try things is huge. You can have a guy who's extremely talented, extremely fit and athletic, but if he hesitates to experiment, it'll always hold him back. So we always have that moment, your your first day of class where you come in and you're feeling awkward. Maybe you were scared to even walk in the front door because I was. I was terrified to walk into my academy the first day. And so you walk in and you go through the line drills and you, you learn one millionth of jujitsu. You're learning one little kind of corner of what we do. And then the coach says, grab a partner, have a round. 
and you're like, what do I do? Like, what, how do I approach this? Like, I don't know anything. And the people who embrace that and just go with it and just, they just try, even if it's completely wrong, even if they're too aggressive, even if they're too spazzy, the people that just embrace not knowing and they just go for it. Those are the people that, that I love to coach because those are the guys and girls who are willing to learn and willing to admit that they don't know anything, right? They're not embarrassed to not know anything because they accept that they're willing to learn. And so that's the biggest thing. The biggest hurdle with new students, new to me, are guys or girls that come in, maybe they're a blue or a purple belt, and they are so stuck in their ways that they become very uncoachable. They think that they're doing things right, but their body's not moving the right way. They get frustrated with a, with a new technique and they kind of just do it twice and they go, oh, it's fine. You know, I'm never going to use that. And so that humility of just being able to say, I don't know what I'm doing at any level is really like the crux of all learning for me. And that's something that if I travel to your academy and, and you and I are drilling and, and your professor is, you know, showing a technique, like I have no problem saying like, I don't get this. I could probably muddle through it, but I need to know what you're teaching me and not what I think I know. And the ability to understand that is really, really vital to learning and just to me enjoying the engagement with you. Your willingness to say, I don't get this, dude. Can you help me? Like my body's not moving the right way. That's what I look for. Do you find yourself still learning stuff? Oh, every day. I find myself learning it as I'm talking, you know, like I'll, I'll be in a class and I'm like, oh crap, you know, and, and I'm, I'm figuring things out. And uh, I still, you know, I, I go out and see my buddy Jay Pages. He has a giant academy here in Tempe. Uh, I go see him almost every Thursday. I take his class. You know, there's a lot that I have seen, but there's a lot that's changing. There's a lot that is just a little bit different. And I think that, you know, you can learn from, from anybody and from anything you can, you can learn from, I can learn jiu-jitsu from watching a football game. There's movement and there's motion everywhere. And there's always, always more. It's a never ending battle. It's, it's that Dunning-Kruger effect, right? right? Where the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. So you get guys who are two years in and they get their blue belt and they think that they've seen it all. Well, they don't know enough to know that it's limitless. Like the universe of jiu-jitsu is just ever evolving and vast. What is your A game? That's a tough one for me. I, I think my, my jiu-jitsu probably shines the most from my guard play. I like the way I pass guard. I really enjoy passing guard. But I think that the complexity of what my legs can do is where my jiu-jitsu shines the most and where I value my jiu-jitsu the most. And so my A game usually involves restricting movement with my upper body and manipulating position with my lower body. And so we try to use this 80-20 rule in jiu-jitsu where our arms are doing 20% of the activity, our legs are doing 80% in any scenario at all. And so uh, I might control uh, a wrist with my hands but my legs are doing all the heavy lifting. My legs are kind of weaving in and out. And I think that I'm probably, my A game is entering and manipulating bodies through triangles. Uh, I'm always looking for a triangle entry. That's what I really enjoy doing. So yeah, I think that's a roundabout way of saying, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so then conversely, where do you find like the deficits or, you know, where's, I, I don't want to say weaknesses, but where do you wish you were better would, or would want to shore up? You know, I, it's funny. I, I, when I got my brown belt, I told my coach, 
I said, I want to be stronger in my jujitsu. Like I, I, I want to use more strength. And he kind of gave me a weird look because nobody ever says that. Like, you know, mm-hmm. but I think that like there are a lot of chances for me to end matches that I let things go because I don't want to be a bully. I don't want to be strong, you know, and I think that it's hurt me in the past where I've been on a submission entry and just didn't want to be strong. And so I'd like to get better at at 135 pounds. I feel very strong. I feel like I can I can manhandle most guys my size, but I don't. And so I think that, that that's a that's a giant hole in my game. Hmm. That sounds like almost like a psychological challenge. I think it is. I struggle with the idea that I understand that using muscle is the fastest way to make yourself tired, to exhaust yourself, right? And so if I'm clenched, if I'm pulling all that locked muscle, all it does is, is, is just deplete your cardio and then you're gassed out and then your muscles start failing. And hmm. so if you're nice and flowy and your body's loose and you're moving and you're kind of just flowing with emotion and you can catch submissions like that, then I can roll for an hour and I feel like I can have a conversation. I'm never out of breath. Mm-hmm. And so when you compete, you know, you're always juggling that I'd like to end the match where I can barely stand up, but I have to end the match before I can barely stand up. And so mentally understanding how far I can push my strength and how far I can be a bully before I tap out because I'm just exhausted or I I end up shit in the bed because now we have two minutes left in the match and I've wasted all that energy on that clench uh, when I should have been a little bit lighter. So I think learning that is is really important. I'm curious, do you have a strategy going into a competition? Do you, when you coach your students, do you have them have a strategy of some sort? Yeah, I think that like, so I personally usually go into it with a blank slate. Uh, I I don't do a lot of research beforehand. I like to just kind of, you know, go with the punches and see what happens. You know, I've I've had good success with that. You know, if I look at like my combat jiu-jitsu match, I think that would have been a great situation to have a coach in your corner saying, Hey, let's, let's stand up now, you know, and having somebody to direct me, you know, I, I felt very comfortable in that match and what I was doing, uh, everything was going honestly, how I thought it would go and, and how I wanted it to go. I thought I, I, I was going to get a submission, you know, I wanted to do jujitsu, but there's a time when you need somebody to step in and say, Hey, like you're making a mistake. Let's, let's do this instead. And so with my guys, I, I, uh, I, I do, I'm a very active coach. So we have a game plan going into it. And if it's a five minute match, I don't stop talking for five minutes. And I'm very, very, very specific in what I say. I'm not saying, Hey, don't be there. Well, no shit. No one wants to be there. And I'm not saying get up. You know, it, it's more a matter of, Hey, left hand goes here. Right hand goes here. As he does this, you're going to do this. You know, if you do that, like, I think you're going to do that. This guy's going to respond by doing this, you know? So we're very, very vocal and talking our way through the whole, you know, through the whole event. You know, I had a match with a kid named uh, Dominic Salcedo and uh, he's incredible. He's a this little tiny guy and he's a purple belt and the match kind of got crazy and he heel hooked me, you know, and it was a super clean catch and it was perfect. He, he did a phenomenal job. And then I think two months later, one of my blue belts had to fight him and I was able to coach my blue belt into, he, he ended up losing in overtime and like the bottom of the third overtime in EBI rule set. But I was able to tell him what to expect. And, and we had a perfect game plan and uh, he's able to get the guy through the whole regulation. Dominic is a phenomenal leg locker. I mean, he is perfect at it. 
And so we were able to shut the whole game down and keep him from being active for the whole, you know, whole regulation, able to pass guard and really dominate the regulation just because we had a game plan going into it. And I had a student who trusted my coaching. We try to have students who are like video games, you know, and like I get to control them. And that level of trust is so high that, you know, they are going to pull back on their instincts and completely trust what I'm seeing from the outside. And so I think that's where the people can really do well with a game plan is having that outside eyes to kind of get you out of your own head and really help you through that. But for me, I I definitely go into it blank slate most of the time. Hmm. Do you find that each competitor sort of behaves differently to different types of styles of coaching? Yeah, 100%. I think that, uh, you know, we, we have guys who are very trusting and they follow the plan and they follow what, what the instructions are. And I'm, I'm okay with this. I tell them my, my job is to give you all available options and, and it's your job to make the decision to listen or to not listen because hmm. ultimately you're the one feeling it, not me. And so I might think, something, you might feel something different. Maybe you're wrong. Maybe I'm wrong, but ultimately it's up to them to really make that choice. And and that's okay either way. But yeah, some people are very coachable and they understand that uh, I'm looking out for their best interest and I'm just trying to help them. Others are a little bit stubborn and and becomes more challenging for sure. So Mike, can you tell me a time that you ever wanted to quit? So (laughs) I I tell everybody this, I'm a quitter. Uh, I am, I'm a quitter by nature. I think, uh, I have been near the top of so many things and I, I, I quit, you know, I mean, I was, I could have been an Olympian, you know, in gymnastics, no doubt in my mind, I was, I was very good. And the thought of going to Penn state and having to challenge myself academically and physically in gymnastics, I, I quit. I joined the army instead and I quit. You know, I, I was a very, very good snowboarder up until it got to the point where I had to do real pro snowboarding things. And I quit, you know, I was a really good wrestler up until the point where the guys who wrestled club had more technique than me and I quit, you know? And so I had this perfect storm with jujitsu where I was old enough to acknowledge that I was a quitter and I was young enough to be physically able to do it still. But I had an amazing room full of training partners who I felt this obligation to. You know, there's such a community aspect and there were people that I knew needed me there. And so, you know, I've never in my jujitsu career had that moment where I wanted to quit. And it's the first time it's ever happened with anything in my life, you know, where it's just like something about jujitsu and something about just that desire to, even if I wasn't competing to help the guys who were competing and to be a part of that team, it just never enter my mind. Like the possibility of even taking my foot off the gas has never crossed my mind. And to this day, I mean, like I look so forward to teaching every night and I get so excited about going to other gyms and training and teaching and being a part of like this amazing community. It's been the only thing in my life that has kept me at this much attention for so long. And I don't see it going away because there are things that I am so much better at today than I was a year ago. And I think, again, being mature enough to see that and to see that there's no end, right? There's no goal in jujitsu. It just always, it always, always, always gets more complex and there's always more rabbit holes to chase. I appreciate so much your your honesty in terms of finally speaking up for us quitters out there and uh, expressing the self-awareness because I'm particularly interested. So there's a couple things here. I often hear from people, oh, I was smashed the first day of jujitsu, you know, and I'm like, 
hey, if they can do that to me, I got to learn this. Where I was the guy that I yeah. lost a bunch early on in jujitsu. And I'm like, this isn't for me. Uh, you know what I mean? And, and it sort of reinforced yeah. the, the quitting mentality over and over. So I'm curious, like in your late 20s, 30s, it sounds like when you had this pattern of quitting these type of things, you suddenly, what was that pivot? What was that that made you not quit? What, what, what was the sudden change? I don't know. I, I really don't. I feel like, you know, I had a huge lifestyle change at the same time. My son was born when I was 30. And, you know, I, I spent all of my 20s just kind of being selfish and and like, like everyone should, right? I think mm -hmm. your, your 20s are for that self-exploration. And, you know, it's one of those things where people say, oh, you know, I, I wish I had started jujitsu when I was younger. And I, I never wish that for me. You know, had I started jujitsu in my 20s, I'd be 40 now saying, oh, yeah, I used to do that thing like everything else I used to do, you know? And so the universe is a way of evening things out and things happen when they're supposed to happen. And I think this was the perfect time for me because I was the guy getting smashed. My gym was very big. You know, we had a small academy, but a very large set of people. They were, they were big men and I just got obliterated. You know, I went in there and it was a very aggressive gym. Everyone rolled very hard. I mean, there was lots of uh, days where I, I drove home, like just staring, you know, like the windows down, just trying to make sense of what happened to me. Yeah. But one of my, prof my very first professor, a guy named Matt Leach, his story was similar, but it was opposite. You know, he's a big guy, 6'2", very, you know, probably 190 pounds, but he's a, a big man. He's an amazing firefighter and he's a SWAT team trainer. And he's just a bad dude in, in, in every sense of the word. And he started doing jujitsu in the early days. And at the time, there was basically one group of guys in Oregon doing jujitsu out of the garage. And uh, they made like a two hour drive down there to see what this jujitsu thing was all about. And the story he tells is he just got his butt handed to him for hours by a little guy, 140 pound dude. And they had been fighting forever. They'd done all these different kinds of thick fighting and everything else. They were tough dudes. Oregon's early days with Team Quest and all these guys kind of figuring out MMA was just the stories coming out of Oregon are crazy. And he was part of that. And so he says, we drove home for two hours, my buddy and I, and all we could think of was like, we have to learn this. And I think that that usually is that crucial moment where guys say, I hate this because that little dude beat me up and screw that sport. Or they say that little guy beat me up. Like I absolutely have to learn this, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that even though I was a smaller guy, I still learned that, that like, I got to learn this, you know, like this is what I want to do. And, and it was all in from the beginning. You know, I got lucky where my wife and I started at the same time and she was super stoked on it. And, uh, you know, she's a very competitive person. And there was never a moment where we had to take away from the family to do it. We just dove right in. We had mats in our dining room. We had everything right away. I was accepting enough to know that this is how it's going to be for a while. The beauty of that is you get to get that out of the way. And so when I roll with somebody now, whether it be a brand new white belt or a world-class black belt, and we're training, I don't mind losing. You know, we just all play the game. For us little guys, you're forced to concede that notion early on. Like You're going to lose. You're going to lose. You're going to lose. And then you're going to get really hard to submit because you spent so much time losing, mm. you know, and then... When you finally have those breakthroughs, they come at just the most critical moments of your journey where you have this breakthrough of success. You know, you have this guy that's been mauling you for six months, and now you can go five minutes without getting submitted by him. And that's a huge win. And then six months goes by where you guys are just having stalemates. And then you catch him once, you know, and you're like, okay. So for me, I think that like, even though I had that natural inclination to quit, 
jujitsu did a good job of giving me just a little bit of reward when I needed it the most. And it just kept me going. And it really got me out of that cycle of quitting. And it's been good ever since. Can you talk about the worst injury you've had, nagging injuries, and, and how do you deal with these things? Yeah, so as far as jujitsu goes, I've been very lucky. I think it goes back to gymnastics. Your core strength that you learn and you that you need in gymnastics, your core keeps you a lot of your important things injury-free. One of the biggest things we talk about in gymnastics is both strength to weight ratio and then strength throughout a large range of motion, right? So you can be very flexible but not strong and then you get hurt, you know, or you can be very rigid and super strong and still get hurt, right? So our job as a gymnast is to be strong throughout a large range of motion. We had a guy that I trained with, he, he's in phenomenal shape, you know, he deadlifts and he, he's a CrossFitter and he was drilling takedowns and he posted his arm and tore his shoulder, Oof. you know? So he just didn't have that strength that is necessary, an odd platform, right? So like, if we bench press, we're super strong, you know, at that 90 degree angle to our spine to where in gymnastics, whenever lifting weights, it's always being strong at these funny angles. And so I've been very lucky with that. Uh, growing up, you know, I had concussions and a couple things like that, but never been casted. Uh, I've never had a broken bone throughout all the craziness that I've done. Never had my knees blow out. You know, I've had my foot pop, but those, those heal fast. My elbows pop, but the same thing. It's not a big deal. I do have a pretty nasty neck and that comes from gymnastics. I was scheduled to have a double disc replacement in my neck three years ago. And so I've been putting it off since then. <laughs> One of those things where it will feel really good for six months and I'll forget that I even have an injury and then it flares up and it, uh, it's irritating for a couple months and you know, you gotta just wait it out. But I've been good, man. I think that, you know, at 40 years old, I still skateboard every day. I'm, I have a half pipe in the backyard. I skateboard every day. I have a trampoline. I bounce on the trampoline. You know, I still can do flips. And I ended my Globetrotters seminar with back handsprings down the mat and a big backflip. But it, it's a very conscious effort. You know, I ride my Peloton every day. I sit in the sauna for 45 minutes every day. I lift weights every day. I do jiu-jitsu every day. My life is dedicated to keeping myself active because I know that that's what I love in life. I mean, I love that I have a 10 year old son who still thinks I'm a superhero, you know, like we, we can go and do anything and I'm good at it. You know, we, we go to the parkour gym and bounce on trampolines and I can still show off and all the kids in the whole place come look at me and they're like, wow, you know, and I love that. It's not, it's not without effort. You know, I work hard to be injury free and to keep myself healthy and to stay limber and stay active and be able to play. Cause at the end of the day, I'm a big kid. I play all day long, every day. My wife is a doctor and she has a super serious job and she pays all the bills and I get to skateboard and trampoline and wrestle with my friends. So I have the world's best life. It's amazing. I'm going to cast a wide net here again and ask who are some jujitsu practitioners that you admire? Yeah, I go back to uh, Jeff Lover. You know, Jeff Glover was a guy who completely changed my trajectory in the sport. This is going back seven years. And uh, as crazy as it sounds, the internet, as far as jujitsu, was still fairly new. Mm -hmm. You know, there wasn't a lot of content. You weren't watching a lot. You know, uh, we had Instagram, but it wasn't quite as active as it is now. And I didn't watch any jujitsu videos or anything. I just, I learned from my coach. I went to the gym. We did jujitsu. I never saw jujitsu outside of the room. And I watched a match. It was Bill Cooper versus Jeff Glover. They competed at a tournament in Japan and they were both Paragon guys. They made it to the finals. 
and they had a very fun match. And the style that they had, these guys were doing jujitsu in a way that I'd never seen happen before. So I watched that match at least once a month. I watched it over and over again. And I watched that and I thought, man, I can do gymnastics and fight, right? I can do all these things that I want to do and I can break all the rules and I can still be successful because the rules are there for them, but not me, right? Like I, I can do everything wrong and still make it work because I watched Jeff Glover do this, you know, and that was such an influential moment. I'm still not a big Jeff Glover instructional fan. Right? Like, I'm not a big instructional fan at all, but that moment in that match with him completely changed how I knew I wanted to do jujitsu. And what it did is it opened my eyes to the possibility of being able to invent the sport, how I wanted to make it. And that was like the, the, the number one thing that I look back and say, wow, like that was the moment for me. I look up to a lot of guys, but and I think there's a lot of guys who are great people and I like their business acclimate. I love their competition style. I love the way that they, they train. But that match, that moment in time is what made me in jiu-jitsu today. It's 100% that match. So, Mike, what do you see in your future? You know, I, I'm never a big planner. I don't like to plan things. I like to just kind of do things as they come. It drives my wife crazy. Like your jiu-jitsu? Uh, I will. Exactly. Right. Like I'll pack for Europe like the day before I leave. And <laughs> funny thing real quick, too. So one of my students, he works for American Airlines and he gets me flights for employee pricing, which is fantastic. It allows That's me awesome. to travel all over. He and I trade private lessons. So uh, it's perfect. The caveat is it's always standby. And so he, uh, you know, I was in Germany in July and uh, I was supposed to leave on Thursday evening. I was sitting in the sauna Wednesday at noon. He says, hey, can you leave right now? I said, yeah, yeah, I'll leave right now. Let's go. So I got took a shower and went to the airport and flew to Germany. And so he calls me in Germany. He says, hey, I can't get you home from Germany. I said, okay. And he says, can you go to Amsterdam? Said, yeah, let's go. So I hop on a train to go to Amsterdam, fly home from Amsterdam. I'm in the air for nine hours. We touch down in Dallas and my phone blows up. He says, hey, I can't get you back to Phoenix. Do you mind going to Denver? And I said, yep, I'm going to Denver. I spent a week in Denver. So I love that. You know, I have to be in Poland next month and he can't get me to Poland. I said, drop me off anywhere in Europe. And I'll figure it out. It doesn't matter to me, you know, so I'm not a planner, but I love the direction that my life is heading. You know, I think that being able to, to travel and teach, I didn't have a passport until this year. I've never, never gone anywhere. I've never had the ability to travel. I'm from, you know, I grew up in a trailer park in Ohio. So this idea that I've got stamps and a passport just blows my mind, you know, that I'm having coffee on the rooftop of a castle in Heidelberg, you know, like it's so far from what I ever imagined I would be able to do with my life. You know, I, I knew I, I knew I wanted to do great things. And if I can just keep letting things play out how they're playing out now, where I get to travel and teach and, and own a couple businesses and have a great family have that support there, then I will call my life a success every day. So Mike, one of the closing questions that I like to ask someone is, how did you learn to tie your belt? <laughs> have you seen my video? You got to watch it. So I have a, so this is hilarious. So it's, it's very funny that you asked that. I had just started doing all this Instagram content and I thought I was putting out 
just perfect videos, all this cool technique and ninja stuff and me doing flips. And I'm getting, you know, a thousand views here and 500 views there. And so I had a coach who was from Hawaii and he moved to Oregon and he trained with me and he showed me how to tie up my belt a different way. You fold it in half first and you put it through your, and you make it this knot and it stays tied the whole time you're training. And, uh, and it looks really pretty. And, uh, I've become this, absolutist when it comes to tying your belt. Like I give everybody a hard time. Like if the tails aren't perfect, if the knot's not dead on, like I'll give you a hard time. Like at impact, we wear our black bars on the left side. If it's on the right side, I'm going to give you a hard time about it. Like I like a perfect belt. Like my belt has creases where it folds and I find that crease every time. So I'm leaving an academy I was training at. I was a purple belt at the time and I put my camera on the front desk of the gym and I tie my belt on video. I put the video on my Instagram and I go to sleep. And I wake up and there's like a hundred thousand views. Oh and so it's got a hundred thousand views. I get reposted by like 12 different Instagram pages, ended up having like five or 6 million views total, thousands of comments, absurd ones. Like people were upset at how I tied my belt. They thought it was disrespectful. I got everything you could possibly think of for a reaction. Yeah. So I have all these videos and I pinned it to my store or to my page for my story. So you can watch the video. And it still is like by far my most viewed video. And it's so absurd. And it's so disrespectful to me because <laughs> I try so hard to put out cool stuff and, and have that good information. That happens? So yeah, it's a very interesting belt tying how I got here. And, and it's made me this absolutist when it comes to belt tying. So if I see you in person, I'm judging how your belt looks for sure. So Mike, where can we get more information about you and everything that you're doing and, you know, stay on top on the Mike universe? Yeah. So I'm most active on Instagram. Uh, it's just Michael Courier BJJ on Instagram. I'm more active now on YouTube. I'm trying to add more content and it's the same. It's just Michael Courier BJJ on YouTube. So super easy to find me. I can't say how, you know, how much I appreciate your time today and being on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I really had a good time. So everyone, remember to give us the whole five stars, thumbs up, and the whole thing. For the socials, check us out on Forever White Belt. Do the search and everything, and we appreciate your time, and see you guys on the next episode.